as well as he could in that culture. And since it has moved through cultures and through time, I think the uh, extraordinariness of what he taught is that it, be it becomes timeless and becomes re-contextualized um, in every culture, so that if we are talking about things that contribute to suffering now, we have a different understanding of the forces in uh, how the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion work through groups and through um, groups of people and, and countries, not just through individual people, through social systems. And I think it becomes really appropriate for us to look at how those forces of greed, hatred, and delusion cause suffering in all those levels. So and, uh, it seems to me not... I think we're actually out doing the Buddha in um, uh, widening the understanding of suffering into the modern era. Like uh, the Buddha's idea is a living idea that keeps growing with us. Is this... I turned it on. Okay, it's on. Um, uh, so one more thing, and this is beyond the tape. Who's new today? Who hasn't been here before? I thought you were. What's your name? Scott Davis. Scott, please come again. Do you live nearby? San Francisco. Oh, okay. Near enough, Bye. <laughs> How about you? My name's Margaret. I live in San Rafael. Oh, good. Well, we are here all the time, Margaret. Please come. Uh, yeah. Eileen Barker. I'm from Puerto Madera. Oh, good. Good. Everybody else has been here before. Oh, no, there you are. <laughs> I'm Jennifer. I live in San Francisco. Oh, good. Please come again. How many of the people who have come for the first time teach school and can't come in the wintertime? I have this theory that they're all school teachers. <laughs> oh, there you are. Do I, have we met before? Yes. Okay. What's your name? Suzanne. Suzanne. Yeah, we're visiting from Berlin, so we're just here for the... I'm here for the first time. Oh, good. And you, and you live in Berlin? I live in Berlin, Germany, yes. Uh-huh. Well, I'm very happy to have you. What's your name? Gordon. Gordon, hello. Mm -hmm. That was my friend Ula. She lives in Berlin, too. Uh -huh. Well, welcome. I've been here many times, and it always has been a very, or is a very, very important place. And I miss it over there, this kind of quality of community. Well, we are, we are very happy with this. You'll, you'll notice that we are very much... Community. I mean, we've just been here a little bit. We've already uh, um, prayed for people in our community, and uh, I, th I think it's a one. We have an email here for letting people know in between who's in trouble and who they should think about. And I actually think it's completely uh, the response of the quiet heart to really wish well for people. I, I believe that. It's not like you have to really think, oh, I should be wishing well for the people I care about. I think when the mind is quiet, well, when the mind is relaxed, not quiet, when we're not feeling threatened, we really wish so well for other people. And our minds get very tolerant, which is really mostly what I wanted to talk about. I was thinking about views. And it, it came about, actually, now apropos of James's... Uh, James's uh, uh, happening that he's organizing tonight. So I've been thinking about views, uh, especially now that it's getting to be in the uh, uh, election uh, season, and everybody's got a view. And 
My friend Tony has been telling me about his practice of listening to uh, confrontational radio. He likes to listen as he drives around in his car all day long in his free time. He listens to controversial call-in talk shows, especially those where they have extremely polarized, polarized view and they talk to each other in no uncertain terms. And I, I, we, he tells me about it, and he's very serious about it. He says, "I'm practicing equanimity," and uh, I, you know, and I tease him back, and I say, "I think actually you're looking for sainthood in this life, you know, <laughs> because I turn that off right away the first second. I can't stand it. It's so agitating to me." And he says, "No, no, it's serious." He says, uh, "So I thought about it actually, and I ended up writing a whole essay about it because I thought he's right." that I turn, I turn off right away when somebody that I don't like their opinion or I don't like what they're saying, especially I don't like how they're saying it, starts to say it and I'm driving. I just turn it down. I leave it down about two minutes and I turn it back on to the past. Anybody else here does that? Yeah. It's too irritating when I drive. So this is what I think. When someone presents facts that I, deliberate, that I think are deliberately misrepresenting the truth, I get frightened and I get mad and I, I think I'm afraid that they're unscrupulously influencing people to believe how they do and that it won't be, nothing good will come of it. And I don't like feeling frightened, which is why I get mad, and I don't like feeling helpless, which is why I get mad and I feel there's nothing I can do about it. And I'm not effective if I'm frightened or mad. So I've been thinking about Tony's practice of equanimity, because actually I'm, I've been pretty involved in this election uh, season, and I'm out and I'm calling and I'm speaking at gatherings and rallies and I'm writing letters to the editors, I'm doing all kinds of stuff, and I think I'd be great if I were doing it with equanimity instead of with anger. First of all, I'd be more effective in what I do, and second of all, it would be less wear and tear on my own system. So I think about when I listen to people who say things that I think are untrue, that, that things that uh, mock my point of view or mock my candidate. So the, the, what I, how I got around to work this out is I was thinking about the teaching of Shantideva, the 6th century Buddhist commentator. He wrote a book called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Chapter 6 of that book is a chapter on patience. It's an incredible chapter. Um, I probably, many people probably here have told, have heard me tell the story of going 11 years ago now to a conference in Tucson, uh, a five-day conference at which the, uh, the Dalai Lama taught, taught the 1,200 people at this conference. We took up a whole hotel right outside of Tucson, 1,200 people in this entire hotel, meeting morning and afternoon, morning and afternoon for five days. And the teaching was chapter 6 of A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And His Holiness, his way of teaching, although his English is quite good, when he's going to do um, an exegesis of text that way, line by line, he does it in Tibetan so he can be even more nuanced. So how it worked is he'd come in, everybody would come in in the morning because of the security, you sit down, he comes in, doors are closed, every seat taken, he comes in, he bows, he sits down, and he's got a translator right next to him. The translator is uh, Tibetan. Uh, 
And the translators are all Oxford-trained English speakers so that their English is marvelous and their Tibetan is native. So he sits down with a text of whatever it is he's doing and then he turns page by page and he reads it in Tibetan and then he comments in Tibetan, long comment, and we all just sit and he's commenting, but it doesn't matter because it's just so nice to sit with him. He could just sit and comment the whole day in Tibetan. You don't even need don't even need a translator. And then the translator, he'd stop and the translator would do over that verse and say what he said. And we get day after day after day. And all of the verses in that uh, in chapter six, which I didn't bring today, say are, are hypothetical situations. They say, what if uh, somebody hits you, or what if somebody robs you, or what if somebody this you, or what if somebody that you, different kinds of circumstances where you might lose your patience and get angry. Oh, by the way, the first line of chapter 6 says, one moment of anger erases eons of good karma. So, <laughs> so, so, that, so then you think, whoa, this is, what does that mean? We'll, we'll come back to it. But it, it, we'll come back to it because I think it's very interesting. When I first read it, I thought, oh, I can't believe that. Because, no. <laughs> well, the reason I can't believe that is because I don't like it. I mean, maybe it's true. But I think there's another way to understand that. One moment of a breakthrough of anger. So, so anger is the worst in that whole cosmology. I think actually anger is the worst. It really clouds the mind, prevents clear seeing, and leads to behavior that's hurtful. So that's strong language, but anyway, then it goes on to tell all these hypothetical ways in which you might be provoked and you might have anger arise and how you should work so as not to become provoked. Like if somebody hits you with a stick, was one of them. It says, would you get mad at the stick? And I say, well, no, it would be stupid to get mad at the stick. I mean, you wouldn't get mad at the stick. So would you get mad at uh, the arm that wielded the stick? No, it doesn't make any sense to uh, get mad at the arm that wielded the stick. It wasn't the arm's fault. And I say, well, maybe you should get mad at the person whose arm it was that held the stick that beat you. He said, well, it really wasn't the person's fault, really. It's the fault of greed, hatred, and delusion that was present in that person's mind. So, I mean, no, no point hurting this person back. You're the enemy. If there's an enemy, it's greed, hatred, and delusion. And he said, they can't fight it in that person. You fight it in the world. And the only way you can fight it in the world is in your own self by not adding more greed, hatred, and delusion into the world. Finished. It's so clear, you know. <laughs> I love that. So, so you get hit with a stick. Until you get hit with a stick. <laughs> oh, maybe i tell you a story about why I was late this morning. <laughs> Uh, not yet, though. We'll see. Uh, then uh, that's my second favorite story. My favorite example in that, you know, what if, what if, what if, is what if somebody defames your good name? What if somebody says out something not true about you, well, something something bad about you publicly? Uh, so you should reflect thus: Is it true? Here it is. Reflect, Shanti Davis suggests, on whether that what that person said is true. If it is, perhaps you could take it as helpful and change. <laughs> if the information illuminated some flaw in your character that you could address, 
the shame about public exposure might be counteracted by the pleasure of knowing you can become a better person. And if the information is not true, Shanti Deva continues, you could decide not to take it personally. Keeping your mind free of ill will, you could choose what, if anything, you could do in response. Actually, this is my rendition of what Shanti Davis said. Actually, it says, if it's not true, what's the problem? And and my mind, and maybe yours, is, what do you mean, what's the problem? Spread all those bad things about me. People might believe them, but if they're not true, why should it upset your heart? People are free to say whatever they want. And you're free to just continue not to get riled about it. I mean, maybe when we think about what's the meaning of liberation, you can say, well, and anybody can do whatever they want, and this is my truth. I think it's actually more than just being a stoic about it and just saying, well, you know, I refuse to get riled. If I don't get riled, I can see better, and I think that's really the point. My friend Tony, who listens to the talk radio, says it's not just to see if he can keep his blood pressure level no matter what. Do you know there's, there's been some uh, um, tests uh, done in, sci- in science laboratories. I told you one a couple of weeks ago, remember I had a science news where they're putting people in MRI machines of their head. And while they're in there and they can see all the brain patterns, they flash on some sort of uh, screen that's in the MRI machine uh, pictures of various heads of political parties. And, and they know who it is that, you know, and you've already told them what your political preference is to begin with. So when they put, the, you know, your person in there, the mind is doing, and then they put the other person on, and go, it's a whole different part of the mind. It's, a, it's not, of the brain, actually. It's a whole different part of the brain. So that it's not just different wiggles, it's in a different part. And it's probably in the part that's the response part, you know, because the, the person that I or you do not like is the person who's frightening me about whom my mind feels it has to take up arms. And so it's a whole different, and then you feel differently in you. So the point is not not to recognize what you feel is wholesome and not wholesome and not not to choose, to recognize and to choose, but to keep a mind clear so you can choose. So Tony says to me, you know, he says, it's not just about keeping my mind or my brain or whatever it is, my brain content and my blood pressure normal. It's about listening to what people have to say. He says, first of all, he says, you know, I have this view, but it's just a view. I could be wrong. I mean, that's such an incredible point of view. You know, that's really what I wanted to talk about today. None of my points of view feel to me like views. They seem to me like the obvious truth. The other people's thing is a view. The other person's ideas are views. This is the Buddha. This is the Buddha in the Sutta Nipata. This I now declare, after investigation, there is nothing among all doctrines that such a one as I would embrace. Seeing misery in philosophic views without ado- philosophical views without adopting any of them, searching for truth, I discovered inward peace. Not by any philosophical opinion, not by tradition, not by knowledge, not by virtue and holy works, can anyone say that purity exists. 
nor by absence of philosophical opinions, by absence of tradition, by absence of knowledge, by absence of virtue in holy works either. Having abandoned these without adopting anything else, let one calm and independent not desire any resting place. One who thinks himself equal to others or superior or inferior for that very reason disputes. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions for that person, the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. The sage for whom the notions equal and unequal do not exist, he would say, this is true? Or with whom would he dispute, saying, would he say, this is true? Or with whom would he dispute, saying, this is false? With whom would he enter into dispute? An accomplished person does not, by philosophical view or thinking, become arrogant for she is not of that sort. Not by holy works, nor by tradition is she led. She is not led into any of the resting places of the mind. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there, is no, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world, annoying people. <laughs> It's the last line that's great, isn't it? They wander around in the world annoying people. And there are a lot on television programs. You call in people with views and they know. My friend uh, David Zeller years ago said uh, that uh, there was a mantra that he thought all people in teaching positions should say to themselves at least 10 minutes every day, whatever the mantra practice you had, you should say this mantra every day at least for 10 minutes. The mantra, forward mantra, it's, I could be wrong. I could be wrong, you know? You know, I push myself to read the columnists in the newspaper that disagree with me. Actually, I read a newspaper where people are well-spoken, so it, I don't have to deal with um, name-calling. I mean, I, I'm, so, but they do have both ends of the political spectrum every day. And I could just read this column here and not read this one over here. And I tried to read this one over here because it's upsetting to me when they say something that might be right and it disagrees with me. It's like my mind doesn't know how to do that. And it's not as comfortable when it has to deal with maybe changing its mind. I think the idea of saying, I don't know, you know? I mean, there are things that I think are absolutely immutable truths. That's really where I was getting to talk about. But there are other things that I don't know, you know? I don't know. So I think to my, here are the five things that I could do if my mind wasn't confused while I listened, if I listened to talk radio. I could think to myself, I could be right, wrong. I always think right after that, I don't think so, but I could be wrong. <laughs> could be wrong. I might learn something valuable from listening to other people's truths. I might. I might. Again, I don't think so, but you know, I might. I might. I might. I come from a very long line of opinionated people who loved the, you know, standing behind their convictions. I'm a man of principles. I'm actually not sure that's such a relaxed place to be. 
Also, anger clouds my mind, and I can't listen well when I'm angry. I can't. The thing that seems probably most important to me is keeping in mind two things. This person with this other view is a human being and wants, as much as I do, to be happy. Mm. If I can remember that, then I can remember the fifth thing, which is this person who has another view does not need to be in the category of my enemy. I do not need to wish her or him ill. I do not need to wish them ill. That is the hardest thing, because if someone is frightening with me, with me with a view, oh my, this person's view unchecked. If I don't run out and tell everybody in the world this person's view is all wrong, they might believe this person's view and then they do the wrong thing and it would be a terrible catastrophe, so this person has to be my enemy. And it's got several flaws in that. First of all, that it might be a terrible catastrophe. It might not. I don't know anything. I don't know everything. I think this wouldn't be good for the world, but I don't know. Really, I think, I mean, the best of my educated knowledge is that it wouldn't be good for the world, but I don't know. I mean, everybody's writing in the newspapers, has read and studied and has probably privy to more information than I do. I don't know. It was scary to me when I first heard about, um, uh, who was it, Sansanin, the uh, Zen master of the uh, 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 Providence Zen Center, who was main teaching was, um, let me see if I can do it in his little accent. Only keep, no, nah, I don't do accents well. Jack does much better. Only keep don't know mind, he would say. People ask him, he'd say, I don't know. But, you know, he was, he was a brilliant Zen teacher. I mean, the things that he knew. But what he didn't do is take opinionated sides. I don't know. Maybe. don't know. Only keep don't know mind. And I think about that so much because if you have a mind that is um, crowded with opinions, when my mind is crowded with opinions, I can't, I don't have room to see the whole terrain. I'm sure that that's true of me. I'm surprised to find about how opinionated I am. Um, I was going to read you this and see. It's a, it's a, it was a back page of... Um, Sunday's New York Times Magazine section. This is a tricky thing to read because it's, a, it's, it's touching. But I thought I would take this risk. We know each other well. This is written by two people that I don't know. Amy Richards is told to Amy Barrett. I grew up in a working-class family in Pennsylvania not knowing my father. I never missed not having him. I firmly believe that. But for much of my life, I felt why that what I probably would have gained was economic security and with that societal security. Growing up with a single mother, I was always buying into the myth that I was going to be seduced in the back of a pickup truck and become pregnant when I was 16. I had friends when I was in school who were helping to rear nephews and nieces because their siblings, who were not much older, were having babies. I had friends from all over the class spectrum. I saw the nieces and nephews on the one hand and country club memberships and station wagons on the other. I felt I was in the middle. I had this fear. What would it take for me to slip? Now I'm 34. My boyfriend Peter and I have been together three years. I'm old enough to presume that I wasn't going to have an easy time becoming pregnant. I was tired of being on the pill because it made me moody. Before I went off it, Peter and I talked about what would happen if I became pregnant, and we both agreed that we would have the child. I found out I was having triplets when I went to my obstetrician. 
the doctor had just finished telling me, now you watch all the feelings that you have. doctor had just finished telling me I was going to have a low-risk pregnancy. She turned on the sonogram machine. There was a long pause, and then she said, are you sure you didn't take fertility drugs? I said, I'm positive. Peter and I were very shocked when she said there were three. You know, this changes everything. She said, you'll have to see a specialist. My immediate response was, I can't have triplets. I'm not married. I lived in a five-story walk-up in the East Village. I work freelance. I would have to go on bed rest in March. I lecture at colleges. My biggest months are March and April. I would have to give up my main income for the rest of the year. There's part of me that was sure I could work around that, but the matter of, do I want to? I looked at Peter and I asked the doctor, is it, positive to, is it possible to get rid of one of them? Or two of them? The obstetrician wasn't an expert in selective reduction, but she knew that with a shot of potassium chloride you could eliminate one or more. What do you think happens in this? Where are you so far with she this? Abby says she, Abigail says she keeps them all. What do you think? Yeah. No. So who thinks no? Why do you think no? I don't know. It seems like it's like at going in that direction. The story is sort of unfolding. Is there a hint in there? What else? The hint is where it is in the Times. It's in the book review, right? Uh, <laughs> no, it's in the magazine section. It's in a, a section called Lives. How people live their lives. So they're not going to print gloom and doom. No. So she's going to have them. Something's going. To, some miraculous thing's going to happen. Some miraculous thing's going to happen. What do you think, Mary? I think she's going to lose one or more of them. Just mm-hmm. naturally. Okay. What else? She's going to have them and give them up to somebody that can't have kids for adoption. Sherry, what do you think? Well, I just know this is a very controversial and a powerful brings up a lot of feelings for people. But I also know women that have made this decision, and it was a difficult decision, but. It's another thing about people's own reality is mm-hmm. for them what it is and what they need to do. Mm-hmm. If someone else want to say what's, how this is going to go, I'll read you a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody is personally, viscerally involved now, right? You weren't. So anybody doesn't have a view, uh, you know, who has a view. Okay. Yeah, Pasquale. She's going to win the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, having felt physically fine up to this point, I got on the subway and all of a sudden I felt ill. I didn't want to eat anything. What was going on seemed like a very unnatural experience. On the subway, Peter asked, shouldn't we consider having triplets? And I had this adverse reaction. This is why they say it's the woman's choice, because you think I should just carry triplets. It's easy for you to say, but I'd have to give up my life. Not only would I have to be on bed rest at 20 weeks, I wouldn't be able to fly after 15. I was already at eight weeks. When I found out about the triplets, I felt like it's not the back of a pickup at 16, but now I'm going to have to move to Staten Island. I'll never leave my house because I'll have to care for these three children. I'll have to shop, start shopping only at Costco and buying big jars of mayonnaise. <laughs> Even in my moments of thinking about having three, I didn't think that deep down I was ever really considering it. The specialist called me back at 10 p.m. I had just finished watching a Boston Pops concert at Symphony Hall. 
As everybody burst into applause, I watched my cell phone vibrating, grabbed it, and ran into the lobby. He told me that he does a detailed sonogram before doing a selective reduction to see if one fetus appears to be struggling. The procedure involves a shot of potassium chloride into the heart of the fetus. There are a lot more complications when a woman carries multiples, and so from the doctor's perspective, it's a matter of trying to save the woman this trauma. After I talked to the specialist, I told Peter, that's what I'm going to do. He replied, what we're going to do. That respected what I was going through, but at a certain point, he felt that the decision, it, that this was a decision we were making. I agreed. When we saw the specialist, we found that I was carrying identical twins and a standalone. My doctors thought the standalone was three days older. There was something psychologically comforting about that since I wanted to have just one. Before the procedure, I focused on relaxing, but Peter was staring at the sonogram screen thinking, oh my gosh, there are three heartbeats. I can't believe we're about to make two disappear. The doctor came in and then Peter was asked to leave. I said, can Peter stay? The doctor said no. I know Peter was offended by that. Two days after the procedure, smells no longer set me off and I no longer wanted to eat nothing but sour apple gum. I went on to have a pretty seamless pregnancy, but I had a recurring feeling that this was going to come back and haunt me. Was I going to have a stillbirth or miscarry late in my pregnancy? I had a boy and everything is fine, but thinking about becoming pregnant again is terrifying. Am I going to have quintuplets? (laughs) I would do the same thing if I had triplets again, but if I had twins, I would probably have twins. Then again, I don't know. So I would like you to take the next three minutes and talk to the person next to you about how you feel. Two people. Make little groups of three. Everybody has feelings about this. What do you think? What do you think? Two or three is fine. What do you think, Shelley? Georgetta? Georgetta? What's your name? Pauletta. 
I knew it was an Etta, but I couldn't. George Etta, Paul Etta. Okay, Etta. All right. I'm glad to see you back. I missed the third somehow. The first one is about uh, the third one is uh, uh, I can't hear if I'm mad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll go back. We'll go back to the groups. The groups is nice, isn't it? This is only a break. We'll go back. What do you think? What do you think? Not what did you say, but what do you think about what you said? What did you learn from? To share with the group what you thought you learned in your little group. Yeah. Um, where our discussion got to was seeing that there seemed to be, in this article anyway, a choice A and a choice B, whereas it seems like in reality there would be a whole range of creative options, solutions that were outside this black and white kind of thinking. Uh -huh. And as I was exploring that, I realized I was totally addressing a situation in my own life where I was in A or B. Uh -huh. So that was very useful. Yeah, yeah. What's your name? Penelope. Penelope. I think that's a really, really important point, Penelope. Not both of them. First of all, that there are other options and that I hadn't even thought about that, but there's no mention. Uh, uh, my doctor then explained to, the doctor then explained to us the various options that were available. That, that you know maybe it happened and maybe it didn't, but it wasn't in the story. Um, but the the fact that it, when something brings up a lot of passion in me, I see I can usually tell that it's speaking to some situation in my life, which I, yeah, yeah. What were you gonna say? Just scratching your head. <laughs> yeah. Um, Marcia put it in um, terms that we were thinking. She labeled it that, or not labeled it. Um, it the story just blows me away. So, but one of the things she said is how clinical, you know, the selective reduction, or I think whatever it's called, it sounds a little bit clinical. And if you, uh, I'm not exactly sure how you put it, but when you think of war, and if you keep it in this mental state, because I can't tell from the story how she felt, but she sounds very in her mind. And when will she feel that? Because whether you believe in abortion or not, it does have an effect later. And you can make that. You know, you can be in your state and say, this is what I have to do for myself. But if you don't feel it, mm -hmm. I don't know how it ever goes away. I, and mm -hmm. It makes it seem easier than words. Mm -hmm. it, 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 certainly selective reduction is, is one way. Uh, I mean, and that has a clinical sound about it. And still, just to... Uh, how about when you see the signs of people picketing um, family planning clinics with signs uh, that are really harsh about, uh, with words that are really harsh about what's going on. And that's, that's too much. Yeah. Too. I don't know how, do you, yeah, yeah. how do you get to that point where you can look at it <coughs> not so clinically and not so viciously like this is you know, the other words that... Yeah. Can you do it without? Can you do it without vicious? Well, can you do it without anger, really? Because that's what I think the whole discussion is. Can you do? Can you do anything without anger? Can you be? Have, can you make strong actions 
from a place of compassion. Yeah. Um, to me, the important thing is a woman's right to choose. Mm -hmm. And a woman has to know what her life is and what her needs are and what she can deal with. And um, I mean, I think it's criminal that they say that, you know, people shouldn't have abortions, but they don't provide ways for people to grow up and don't provide, you know, health care. They don't provide, I mean, that the, the people who are advocating that people should have babies don't advocate that these babies need to be taken care of the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that a woman needs to have the right to choose and she needs to have a perspective on her, home, on her life in terms of what, you know, what, what it means to have children. Mm -hmm. And, and I, um, okay. <laughs> no, I'm going to say, I'm going to say publicly that, um, I have a fabulous life and I'm delighted about the choices I've made. And I chose in my life to have three abortions with my husband. And I, it was always the right choice because I know that if I didn't make those choices, I would not have the life I have now, which I'm totally delighted with. Mm -hmm. Barry also just taken a moment to appreciate for all of us that we are such a community with such a degree of openness and honesty that we are all trusting each other to hold our opinions and our choices in great respect. It brings tears to my eyes. I want us to look at each other and smile or pat the person next to you or something. So the, okay, there you go. Yay for us. Edie, I'll come back. Edie. I felt after our speaking about holding our opinions and our views and how do we become aware of them. This little talk in our group of four was just so illuminating to, for us to hear and reflect how each one of our opinions is so intensely rooted in the truth and authenticity of our own life mm -hmm. and our own experience. Mm -hmm. And that the view really comes from this this powerful life that each of us mm -hmm. have. And just in our little group, that was very evident and also made a very intimate knowing of each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like I really deeply respect each person's right to choose. And I think in our group, what we all felt is like, we, we don't know what's right for her. Or what. So, but I think that what was bothering me about the piece was that it was written the, the levity and the sort of, and I sort of appreciated the humor as you were reading it, but I just felt that there was just this tone of sort of sort of the Costco and the mayonnaise and the, that it, can't, it came away to me. That what was missing was sort of just a, at least it wasn't expressed in the piece of an appreciation for the, that this is a life and death decision, whatever decision you make that just that sort of reverent, reverence and regard for life, and mm -hmm. that was really, it brought up a pain, really deep pain and sadness for me. Mm -hmm. Mary? I was interested in how hard it was to hold both pieces, mm -hmm. because I felt, I mean, I do feel like it's everybody's right to choose. At the same time, that image of the injection into the heart of the child, I was astonished at how strongly I felt about that. And so to be able to hold both of those in the same container is really difficult. And I think that that's part of what makes it so easy to get into this kind of a place about opinion, because then you don't have to consider that other little piece of it. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> but, discussion with the four women and the um, interesting. We had a rich discussion in our group, and the interesting that came out of the process was that um, how each of us said that at different times in our life we would have had a different decision or a different mm-hmm. idea or a different view, and so the whole idea of the impermanence of our views really ended up to be the highlight. This is a really important point that I want to come back to also. Could you repeat it, please? We couldn't hear Go ahead. Why don't you stand up and <laughs> shout it out? There you go. We just um, spoke about how each of us at different times in our life might have chosen something different. And so the conclusion was the impermanence of our views and the process that Sylvia put us through was really illuminating about, about that. Hmm. Um, I, I agree with that because I think if I, if I put myself at 34 and I think that I can have more children, that, that decision is totally different than today when I hear the injection into the heart, which just shocked me so much. But I think the part that this lady brought up about making that decision with her husband, I think many times we say it's all right as a woman, but we don't always consider that man, the the husband who had second thoughts about this all through the piece. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's what made me sad. Mm-hmm. 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 For me, I don't like to. <laughs> Wait, Barbara. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I was in a class of very well-educated women one time, and we were discussing this very issue. And half of the class were nuns. Okay, so then we have to realize that we are all basically of the same mind. And uh, there are many people who are Catholic and have very strong opinions on this. And um, my conclusion is, uh, I could be wrong, or they could be wrong. Uh, who, who among who among us can can say I speak the truth? Mm-hmm. Barbara, what were you going to say now? I was going to say that what's missing for me in that article, for me personally, is that the movie Sophie's Choice came to appear. Mm-hmm. And how horrible it was that she had carried that, that she had made a choice. And under, at the time she made the choice, she had to make a choice, one or none. And then, But it's a personal thing that we all carry. I think it's a totally individual decision. And it's well taken on your talk on the views, the different views. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you go. So I don't know. Oh, uh, two things came up. One was there was no mention of, and we assumed that because she was the only child of a single mother, that there was no support system that she saw that she could count on mm-hmm. in dealing with these children. And she looked into the future. She couldn't mm-hmm. think, oh, my brothers and sisters will come and help, my aunts and uncles will come and help, mm-hmm. that I have, you know like a safety net mm-hmm. that would help me deal with this new big family. Mm-hmm. The other thing that came up is that research shows us that babies that are carried in mothers who are under a great deal of stress don't develop to their potential even mm-hmm. before they come into the world. And if she chose to keep them sort of unwillingly, mm-hmm. that 
both she and the babies would have been in trouble right from the start. Complicated, complicated, isn't it? <laughs> There's also something, you know, ever since she read it, I, there's something that I just finally identified in it, something that was remarked about a, a kind of lack of gravity, but also, I hate to say this, but we're talking about something that was done out of convenience. She said that she, mm -hmm. she went off the pill because she didn't like the mood swings, and they discussed it, but the, it's this relative and absolute, the discussion about what might happen. And there's a kind of casualness through this whole thing that I, I must say it, it bothers me. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the more and the, it bothers me the more I think about these uh, what's the euphemism here? Selective reduction. I mean, it is still a violation at the end of the day of the first precept. I mean, there is there is a taking of life here, and the life was given in a very casual. The life was created in a very casual way. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't have any more to say about it, but it is, mm -hmm. I find that very troubling the more I think about it. Mm -hmm. It's, I think, very important to see what it is, that set, what it sets off the story in each person's mind. Yeah, yeah. It set off a whole lot of things. Uh, one about the fact that I'm a person who chose never to have children and have not regretted that and had children in my life. And then through my life, all the people I know who's especially whose children couldn't bear children, weren't able to, wanted to, desperately, and couldn't. And then there's the collection of friends and, my, and in my own family whose children died very young. Mm. And I think of, you know, all of that stuff comes up. Then there are two friends whose husbands left them in their 40s because they, were, they knew that they weren't able to bear children when they married or that they already had children. Um, and so these people, these men had stepchildren. And at some point, the men were desperate for a biological child. Mm. So, you know, I'm looking at it as this incredible range that I don't think I understood. In, I didn't grow up saying I'm not going to have children. I thoroughly mm. thought I would. At some point, I decided, I don't think this is for me. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, what I have is three wonderful stepchildren and six grandchildren. Mm -hmm. I am incredibly blessed. And that mm -hmm. turned out to be wonderful. Mm -hmm. But it, there, there is so much to this decision, and I agree mm -hmm. with the thing about the, the cavalierness. The, it's probably the way it was written. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's got to be more emotion in that. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's an incredibly complicated thing where I want people to be able to adopt children when they want to and not have to run around looking for a child to adopt, to be able to have drugs if they need to stimulate that. Uh, and I want people mm -hmm. to have the right to make a decision. Mm -hmm. This is not for me. Mm -hmm. I can't do it. Abigail. As a writer, I have to say, um, and I was part of this group, it was so interesting to see how our views would be different at different times. My view is different today, having almost experienced my daughter's death than it would have been last Wednesday. But as a writer, this woman makes her living as a writer, as a columnist. You know, she has a certain tone of voice. We have no idea how deeply emotional she really felt about all this or when the experience happened in terms of when she wrote it. I mean, I don't think we can make the judgment that she was just very cavalier and mm -hmm. making fun of it and didn't care. This is how she earns her living. And maybe it was a big struggle for her to even 
write about it so that other people could have this kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. She felt she was really doing a service mm -hmm. to open up the discussion, and it was really difficult. We don't know how many sleepless nights, yeah. you know, she spent. Should mm -hmm. I write this? Will people hate me? I can't write it in anything other than my own voice, you know. There's a whole world of possibility in the denotation and connotation of words. Maybe last one. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, I think you chose a great topic to illustrate the earlier point about how it's easy to get stuck taking a particular position and to have mm -hmm. polarized views. Mm -hmm. And it's a simpler place to be uh, because it's much harder to tolerate ambiguity mm -hmm. and to have this equanimity. And this discussion about don't know mind is not... For me, it's not about abdicating that you're thoughtful, but rather that you can consider numerous positions without having to have a calcified uh, position and not be able to consider other people's viewpoints. And, and this is a topic that you brought up that it really gets people activated. <laughs> well, it does. <laughs> it does. You know what I was thinking about? Just because I, I, I'm, I'm so impressed with the variety of responses that people had, and it just came to me right now at the end that because um, I had also been thinking about uh, there's a there's a sort of a casualness to the tone and. Uh, um, and I have certain opinions about whether or not people are too casual about so weighty an issue. So that's another opinion that I have in there. But And then other people say, well, you know, uh, and Abigail was saying, well, you know, people are journalists, say it's their tone, it's not her tone, and who knows it's her tone. It either is or it isn't her tone. And I was thinking, what would it be like to have a heart where I could say, you know, just listening to this account, and suppose it's just exactly like what it sounds. Do I have the heart to be able to say, you know what? That was her story. May she live and thrive. May she be well. May I not have an opinion for or against her, even if she's just exactly like that, if she had good reasons. Because in my mind, I think, okay, she had good reasons. Because, you know, whatever it was, because I listened to how spacious we all were in trying to construct a lie, the reason that she chose the way that she did. Maybe she just... She just chose, all we know is she chose the way she did. We don't know, actually. And uh, am I making any spaces that say, well, you know, if the reason she chose this, depending on what my, my choice, best choice would have been. But you see, the thing is, as soon as I've got a best choice, it's a problem. It's a, it's a problem. That's my view. This would have been the good choice. And... She either made it or she didn't make it, but uh, and then I can really love her to, mm -hmm. altogether. But can I actually say to myself, may she live and thrive and have the best life possible and not have caveats attached to it if she did it for this or that? <laughs> and that's the weight of my own views, you know? Yeah. Je I think for me there are two pieces here that I would love to have available to myself. Open up a compassionate, loving, spacious way of holding um, this particular human being who went through such a major struggle that I'm sure all of us would wish truly never to have to be in that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. yeah. On the other hand, I would like to hold for myself the enormous gratitude for the opportunity to feel and think and hold all of my own uh, 
feelings and all the other people's feelings about this so that I can be the beneficiary afterwards mm -hmm. of that process so that I don't close down and simply say, um, the only thing available to me is a compassionate response to her situation. Mm -hmm. But to think also, this is a gift, mm -hmm. a gift whereby I get to explore. So if and when I'm in a situation or I see somebody else in a situation, I can participate mm -hmm. in a more skillful, helpful fashion. Mm -hmm. Because in my own life, you know, 62 years ago, because I'm 62, you know, my mother became pregnant at the age of 45 with twins when she had been told very clearly she would not survive another pregnancy. Wow. And it never occurred to either her or my father, partially because there wasn't the technology available, and partially because there wasn't all these options to do anything else than what she did. Was just to plow ahead. <laughs> I mean, you know, anything could have happened. She could have lost both of us. She could have died. It all could have happened. But it never really weighed more on her than this one moment that she had lost a child, and two months later, by some miracle, she'd become pregnant again when she had not been able to become pregnant for decades. And that's what was available to her. And I have gratitude. But I also, because I'm here. <laughs> you know, and there are grandchildren, now great-grandchildren, that poured out of that situation. But there isn't a right and wrong. If she had said, if my father, she had said, we, we you know, you, you're not going to survive this, and so we have to go ahead. You know, I would hope there would be a part of me that would say, well, it would have been nice to have been alive. <laughs> It really is a very life and death. It, this is a very, very strong issue. It's a very, very strong issue. And I'm back to the initial, the initial response from Penelope, I think, was a crucial one to bring back to mind, that in everybody, it comes through in everybody a little bit different, depending on what, and, and, and then Edie said the same thing. It, it does not play on a tabula, tabula rasa, in any of us, it plays through all of our conditioning. And how would it be to have a conditioning that was so free of stickiness that stuff would come through and say, wow, look at that. That person did it that way. You know, that would be, that would be free of views. You know, that I can't, uh, in, actually in this moment, I'm about to say I can't imagine having it. But in this moment, I have like a whiff of what that might be. It seems quite good. <laughs> Somebody was very eager to say something. Well, I was just going to say, like, the bill that as everybody's talk starts, says, started ringing, to me, it's not only Penelope's story, it's also Edie's story. It's also let other people have their views. Reminds me, I think, and certainly in my life, and I assume everybody else's, you have had choices that were impossible choices with your writings. You know, it wasn't necessarily abortion, it wasn't necessarily whatever. You know, for me, I'm struggling with looking at my own life without having views about my views that are so damaging, that I feel, you know, so paralyzed by my own views about what I've done and not done. Because mm -hmm. certainly, I think that must be part of, you know, a long life. Both of those things, you know. Somebody gave a talk at the retreat last week. One of my colleagues at the retreat that I was teaching, um, 
Maybe Barbara remembers it better than I. But somebody gave a talk about the 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 voice, the narrator in our life that follows us around, apparently in our in our psyche, commenting on uh, how we're doing our life as we're going along. Did that really well? You could have done that better. You're doing this great. You should have done that. If you'd gotten up early this morning for the early sit, you probably wouldn't be so sleepy now. You know, the, the, the commentator who's watching, apparently, I mean, it seems like a separate commentator. It's some, some capacity of mind. It's sort of like the director in a movie. You want to re-roll that scene now, do that another way. You didn't quite have enough affect and do this, do that. But always against some hypothetical model in the sky of the perfect rendition of Sylvia's life unfolds. But maybe this is the perfect rendition of Sylvia's life unfolds. And maybe, you know, the screen, the commentary. I don't get to re-roll it. That's the thing. So that I don't need the commentary to tell me you should have this, that, the other. And at some point, where that commentary, whether we're born with the commentary or it's part of the superego or it differs culture to culture, I don't know. But it's interesting. Susan? I think that the choice we have is whether we're going to regret or not. And I know for me, people have said, you know, do you have regrets? And I think, you know, when you make the choice, then that's the acceptance. And, mm-hmm. and then, and, and if you're going to lose the regret, then that's, mm-hmm. that's really Yeah. <laughs> Although in the same New York Times that you're talking about from oh. last week, they have an interview with Sissy Spacek, who's opening as an actress in Washington this week. Yeah. And the quote was, it's never, she's of course done all this movie stuff, and the quote was, it's never too late to think what you might have been. <laughs> uh, it's never too late to think what you might have been. No, 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 no. Because no, I, uh-huh. no, I just say it's never too late to think what you might be. Yeah. It's never too late to think what you might be. Well, we could we could play with that. Like it's never too late to have a happy childhood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Two questions. One is about style. If if they're writing in that style and they're grading on so many different people, the writer should change his style. That's the first one. Yeah. The second one is uh, where does Buddhism take a stand on do no harm when you give a lethal rejection to a fetus? Yeah, actually, I have I had two things to read to you, but I decided that your commentary was more interesting than the Dalai Lama's. Um, <laughs> I did. Because if you, um, because it's, it's, actually, it's actually interesting and just worthy of knowing about um, uh, on abortion, the Dalai Lama said he believed life is sacred and abortion is wrong. There may be circumstances such as saving the life of the mother where it might be an option. Um, on the other hand, he said this in uh, in a talk that he gave in the uh, in Seattle. On the other hand, in another talk that he gave somewhere else, he said. Um, actually, he said more or less the same thing. He said, "He said, aha, uh-huh. um, this is a, a, a talk on ecology." He's, he's talking about uh, the ways in which uh, the resources of the world have not been well 
managed and things are, a whole species are dying out, said, and, and plants and trees. He said, all these things are interrelated. As I mentioned earlier, family planning should be encouraged. From a Buddhist perspective, it's quite simple. Each human life is very precious. From this perspective, it's better to avoid or control birth. But today, there are 1.5 billion precious lives. I think there are more than that. There are 6 billion precious lives, yeah, are there? As a result, it is not only one or two precious lives that are at stake, but the question of the survival of humanity at large. At large. So therefore, the conclusion I arrive at is that we must take family planning very seriously if we are to save the prosperity of the entire humanity, preferably through nonviolent means, though not through abortion or killing, but by some other means. Uh, I often half-jokingly say we should have more monks and nuns. Uh, <laughs> That is the most nonviolent and effective method. Um, but if you can't become a monk or a nun, then you should practice other nonviolent methods of birth control. Uh, now, the the <laughs> well, what are we going to say? Uh, I was going to say that if we if a person believes that we control when we come into this world and when we leave, then those two embryos came in. Mm -hmm as a catalyst for this woman mm -hmm. and her significant other person. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was their role, and they had made a choice to appear, mm. but, be, but also disappear. Mm -hmm. Or the karma of the world caused them to appear. I mean, there's all kinds of context to put that. You know, I want to say one more about His Holiness and His various things that He says, because His Holiness is just a person, really. I mean, He goes out of His way to say, I'm a simple Buddhist monk, and then everybody laughs because He's the Dalai Lama, and He's the 14th incarnation, presumably, of the Bodhisattva of Compassion. But uh, in, in some sense, he's a, he's a, he is limited by being a human personality who operates in the world. So he said those two things in Seattle and somewhere else. He also said uh, at a conference in which uh, my husband was at, um, well, the, some journalist asked him what he thought about abortion. And uh, he said, well, of course, you know, Buddhists generally uh, uh, are opposed to the taking of life in any form. But I could really see where uh, the continuing of a pregnancy that was not wanted might cause such suffering to the parents involved for whatever reason. And through that, suffering to the child, that it might not be a good thing to do. And so I could see that as an individual choice. Now the reason I tell you that, that the Dalai Lama said X and he said Y and he said Z, is that the Dalai Lama is... Um, I don't think he's omniscient, but I think he's smart. And he really, really needs to um, be political in this world. And uh, a lot of the constituency of people who are enthusiastic about Dharma have what we think of as progressive and liberal views. Not saying that progressive and liberal has this view on abortion, but progressive and liberal has a great respect for human beings making their individual choices, I think. That, I think, is progressive as liberals. Funny, used to be thought of as conservative as human beings can make their own choices. But we've, uh, anyway, that was about to be a political remark, so we'll just leave it. <laughs>
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.